This morning, um, I trust your heart has been filled. Mine has been filled. And <clears throat> I'm going to do something very different this morning from the normal course. It, there is a sermon, but I admit up front it's not mine. Uh, this sermon was preached by Richard Sibbs, one of the great Puritans of England, who helped to bring Reformation to a dead church in his day. And this term, sermon's title is The Bruised Reed. And the text which he drew his sermon from is Matthew 12, beginning in verse 18. It says, a quote from Isaiah, actually the prophet. <clears throat> Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 3, is printed on the front of your worship guide. It's also in your Bible, of course. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Richard Sibbs, Richard Sibbs preached on this text entitled, The Bruised Reed. And so, would you turn your heart and your mind to these things? Would you listen closely? I don't promise that this is the easiest sermon you'll ever hear. But I do believe it will transform you. The prophet Isaiah being lifted up and carried by prophetic wing and spirit passes over all the time which stretched between himself and the coming of the Christ in the flesh. Seeing with the eyes of prophecy and with the eye of faith Christ as present. He presents him in the name of God. To the spiritual eyes of others in these words. Behold my servant whom I uphold. Mine elect in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry nor lift up nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break. And the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. These words are alleged by Matthew as being fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ in Matthew 12, 18 through 20. In them are propounded first the calling of Christ to his office. Secondly, the manner in which he carries it out. What is Christ's calling? God calls him a servant. Christ was God's servant in the greatest piece of service that ever was. A chosen and choice servant who did and suffered all by commission from the Father. In this we may see the sweet love of God to us. In that He counts the work of our salvation by Christ His greatest service. And in that He will put His only beloved Son to that service. He might well prefix it with behold. To raise up our thoughts to the highest pitch of attention and admiration. In time of temptation. Apprehensive consciences look so much to the present trouble. 
that they are in, that they need to be roused and brought up, that they might find rest for their distressed souls. In temptations, it is safest to behold nothing but Christ, the true brazen serpent, the true Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This saving object has influence, special influence of comfort to the soul, especially if we look not only on Christ, but upon the Father's authority and love in Him. For in all that Christ did and suffered as mediator, we must see God in Him reconciling the world to Himself. What a support to our faith is this, that God the Father... The party offended by our sins is so well pleased with the work of redemption. And what a comfort is this, that seeing God's love rests on Christ as well pleased in Him, we may gather that He is also well pleased with us if we be in Christ. For His love rests in a whole Christ, in a Christ mystical In a Christ natural, because He loves Him and us with one love. Let us therefore embrace Christ and in Him God's love and build our faith safely on such a Savior that is furnished by so high a commission. See here, for our comfort, a sweet agreement of all three persons. The Father gives a commission to Christ. The Spirit furnishes and sanctifies it to Christ. And Christ Himself executes the office of mediator. Our redemption is founded upon the joint agreement of all three persons of the Trinity. This is here said to be done modestly. Without making a noise or raising dust by any pompous coming as princes are wont to do, his voice shall not be heard. His voice indeed was heard, but what was his cry? Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden. He cried, but how? Ho, everyone that thirsts, come you to the waters. And as his coming was modest, so it was mild, which is set down in these words. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. We see, therefore, that the condition of those in whom Christ was to deal was that they were bruised reeds and smoking flaxes. Not trees, but reeds. And not whole, but bruised reeds. The church is compared to weak things. To a dove among birds. To a vine among plants. To sheep among the beasts. To a woman, which is the weaker vessel. God's children are bruised reeds before their conversion and oftentimes afterwards. Before conversion, all except such as being brought up in the church, God is delighted to show Himself gracious to from their childhood, are bruised reeds, yet in different degrees, 
as God sees fit. And as there are differences with regard to temperament and gifts and manner of life, so there are in God's intention to use men in the time to come. For usually He empties such of themselves and makes them nothing before He will use them in any great service. What does it mean to be a bruised reed? The bruised reed is a man that for the most part is in some misery. As those were that came to Christ for help. And by misery, he is brought to see sin as the cause of it. For whatever pretense sin makes, they come to an end when we are bruised and broken. He is sensible, this man, this bruised reed, is sensible of sin and misery. Even unto bruising and seeing no help in himself is carried with restless desire to have supply from another with some hope which a little raises him out of himself to Christ though he dare not claim any present interest of mercy. This spark of hope being opposed by doubting and fear rising from corruption makes him a smoking flax. So that both these together, a bruised reed and a smoking flax, make up the state of a poor, distressed man. This is such a, a one as our Savior Christ terms poor in spirit in Matthew 5 verse 3. Who sees his wants and also sees himself indebted to divine justice. He has no means to supply for himself or of the creature. And thereupon he mourns. And upon some hope of mercy from the promise and example of those that have obtained mercy is stirred up to hunger and thirst for mercy. This bruising is required before conversion. So that, that, that so the Spirit may make way for Himself into the heart by leveling all proud, high thoughts. And that we may understand ourselves to be what indeed by nature we are. We love to wander from ourselves and to be strangers at home till God bruises us by one cross or another. And then we begin to think and come home to ourselves with the prodigal. It is a very hard thing to bring a dull and evasive heart to cry with feeling of mercy. Our hearts, like criminals, until they be beaten from all evasions, never cry for mercy from the judge. Again, This bruising makes us set a high price upon Christ. Then the gospel becomes the gospel indeed. Then the fig leaves of morality will do us no good. And it makes us more thankful and from thankfulness more fruitful in our lives. For what makes many so cold and barren But that bruising for sin never endeared God's grace to them. Likewise, this dealing of God establishes us the more in His ways. Having had knocks and bruisings in our own ways. 
This is often the cause of relapses and apostasy because men never smarted for sin at the first. They were not long enough under the lash of the law. Hence, this inferior work of the Spirit in bringing down high thoughts is necessary before conversion. And for the most part, the Holy Spirit, to further the work of conviction, joins with it some affliction which, when sanctified, has a healing and purging power. Some of you are suffering. Pain that I know nothing about. I want to pause right here in the message to just insert. Don't be too quick to run from his bruising. Don't be too quick to alleviate what it is you're suffering under. After conversion, we need bruising so that reeds may know themselves to be reeds and not oaks. Even reeds need bruising by reason of the remainder of pride in our nature and to let us see that we live by mercy. Such bruising may help weaker Christians not to be too much discouraged when they see stronger ones shaken and bruised. Thus, Peter was bruised when he wept bitterly. This reed, till he met with this bruise, had more wind in him than humility when he said, Though all forsake thee, I will not. The people of God cannot go without these examples. The heroic deeds of those great worthies do not comfort the church so much as their falls and bruises do. Thus David was bruised until he came to a free confession without guile of spirit. Nay, his sorrows did rise in his own feeling until the exquisite pain of breaking bones. Thus Hezekiah complains that God had broken his bones as a line. Thus the chosen vessel Paul needed the messenger of Satan to buffet him lest he should be lifted up above measure. Hence we learn that we must not pass too harsh a judgment upon ourselves or others. When God exercises us with bruising upon bruising, there must be a conformity to our head, Christ, who was bruised for us, that we may know how much we are bound Unto him. Ungodly spirits, ignorant of God's ways in bringing his children to heaven, censure broken hearted Christians as miserable persons, whereas God is doing a gracious, good work in them. It is no easy matter to bring a man from nature to grace and from grace to glory. So unyielding and intractable are our hearts. Christ will not break a bruised reed. In pursuing his calling, Christ will not break the bruised reed nor quench the smoking flax in which more is meant than spoken for. He will not only not break nor quench, but he will cherish those with whom he so deals. Physicians, though they put their patients in much pain, 
will not destroy nature, but raise it up by degrees. Surgeons will lance and cut, but not dismember. A mother who has a sick and self-willed child will therefore not cast it away. And shall there be more mercy in the stream than in the spring? Shall we think there is more mercy in ourselves than in God who plants the affection of mercy in us? But for further declaration of Christ's mercy to all bruised reeds, consider the comfortable relationships He has taken upon Himself of husband, shepherd, and brother, which will discharge to the utmost. Shall others, by His grace, fulfill what He calls them unto, and not He who out of His love has taken upon Him these relationships so thoroughly founded upon his father's assignment and his own voluntary undertaking. Consider the names he has borrowed from the mildest creatures, such as a lamb and a hen, to show his tender care. Consider his very name, Jesus, a Savior, given him by God himself. Consider his office answerable to his name, which is that he should bind up the broken hearted. At his baptism, the Holy Spirit rested on him in the shape of a dove to show that he should be a dove-like gentle mediator. See the gracious way he executes his offices. As a prophet, he came with a blessing in his mouth. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And invited those to come to Him whose hearts suggested most ex- exceptions against themselves. Come unto Me, all you who, that labor and are heavy laden. How did His heart yearn when He saw the people as sheep who have no shepherd? He never turned any back again that came to Him, though some went away of themselves. He came to die as a priest for his enemies. In the days of his flesh, he dedicated a form of prayer unto his disciples and put petitions unto God into their mouths and his spirit to intercede in their hearts. He shed tears for those that shed his blood. And now he makes intercession in heaven for weak Christians, standing between them and God's anger. He is a meek king. He will admit mourners into His presence. A king of poor and afflicted persons. As He has beams of majesty, so He has a heart of mercy and compassion. He is the Prince of Peace. Why was He he tempted? But that He might help those who are tempted. What mercy may we not expect from so gracious a mediator who took our nature upon him that he might be gracious? He is a physician good at all diseases, especially at the binding up of a broken heart. He died that he might heal our souls with a plaster of his own blood and by that death save us. Which, were, which we were the procurers of ourselves by our own sins. And has he not the same heart in heaven? Saul, 
Saul, why do you persecute me? He cried the head in heaven when the foot on earth was trodden on. His advancement has not made him forget his own flesh. Though it was, has freed him from passion, yet not from compassion toward us. The line of the tribe of Judah will only tear in pieces those that will not have him rule over their hearts. He will not show his strength against the prostate, prostrate when they prostrate themselves before him. What should we learn from this but to come boldly to the throne of grace in all our grievousness? Shall our sins discourage us when he appears there only for sinners? Are you bruised? Be of good comfort. He calls you. Conceal not your wounds. Open all before him and take not Satan's counsel. Go to Christ Although trembling as the poor woman who said, If I may but touch the hem of his garment, we shall be healed and have a gracious answer. Go go boldly to God in our flesh. He is flesh of our flesh and bone of our bone for this reason, that we might boldly go to him. Never fear to go to God, since we have such a mediator with Him, who is not only our friend, but our brother and our husband. Well might the angel proclaim from heaven, Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. Well might the apostles stir us up to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Paul was well advised upon what grounds he did it. Peace. And joy are two main fruits of Christ's kingdom. Let the world be as it will. If we cannot rejoice in the world, yet we may rejoice in the Lord. His presence makes any condition comfortable. Be not afraid, says he to his disciples, when they were afraid, as if they had seen a ghost. It is I, as if there were no cause of fear where he was present. Let this support us when we feel ourselves bruised. Christ's way is first to wound, then to heal. No sound, whole soul, shall ever enter into heaven. Think when in temptation. Christ was tempted for me. According to my trials will be my graces and comforts. If Christ be so merciful as not to break me, I will not break myself by despair, nor yield myself over to the roaring lion, Satan, to break me in pieces. See the contrary disposition of Christ on the one hand and Satan and his instruments on the other. Satan sets upon us, when we are weakest, as Simeon and Levi upon the Shechemites when they were still sore. But Christ will make up in us all the breaches which sin and Satan have made. He binds up the broken hearted. As a mother is tenderest to the most diseased and weakest child, so does Christ most mercifully incline to the weakest. 
Likewise, he puts an instinct into the weakest things to rely upon something stronger than themselves for support. The vine relies on the elm. And the weakest creatures often have the strongest shelters. The consciousness of the church, church's weakness, makes her willing to lean on her beloved and to hide herself under his wing. You may be asking, who are the bruised reeds? Well, there's two answers. By the bruised here is not meant those that are brought low only by crosses, but such as by them are brought to see their sin, which bruises most of all. When conscience is under the guilt of sin, then every judgment brings a report of God's anger to the soul. And all lesser troubles run into the great trouble of consciences of sin, as all corrupt humors run to the diseased and bruised part of the body, and as every creditor falls upon the debtor when he is imprisoned. So when when conscience is once awake, all former sins and present crosses join together to make the bruise the more painful. Now, He that is thus bruised will be content with nothing but with mercy from him who has bruised him. He has wounded and he alone must heal. The Lord who has bruised me deservedly from my sins must bind up my heart again. Again, a man truly bruised judges sin the greatest evil and the favor of God the greatest good. He would rather hear of mercy than of kingdom. The bruised reed has poor opinions of himself and thinks that he is not worth the earth he treads on. Towards others, he is not censorious as being taken up at home, but is full of sympathy and compassion to those who are under the hand of God. He thinks that those who walk in the comforts of God's Spirit are the happiest men in all the world. The bruised reed trembles at the Word of God and honors the very feet of those blessed instruments that bring peace unto Him. Finally, He is more taken up with inward exercises of a broken heart than with formality. And is yet careful to use all sanctified means to convey comfort. But how shall we come to this humble state of mind? First, we must conceive of bruising either as a state into which God brings us or as a duty performed by us. Both are here meant. We must join with God in bruising ourselves. When he humbled us, let us humble ourselves and not stand out against him, for then he will redouble his strokes. Let us justify Christ in all his chastisements, knowing that all his dealing toward us is to cause us to return into our own hearts. His work in bruising tends to work in in us bruising ourselves. Let us lament our own perversity and say, Lord, what a heart have I that needs all this. 
that none of this could be spared. We must lay siege to the hardness of our own hearts and aggravate sin all we can. We must look on Christ who was bruised for us. Look on Him who we have pierced with our sins. But all directions will not prevail unless God by His Spirit convinces us deeply, setting our sins before us and driving us to a standstill. Then we will cry out for mercy. Conviction will breed contrition. And this leads to humiliation. Therefore, desire God that He would bring a clear and a strong light into all the corners of our souls and accompany it with a spirit of power to lay our hearts low. A set measure of bruising of ourselves cannot be prescribed. But it must be so far as that we prize Christ above all. And see that a Savior must be had. And that we reform that which is amiss. Though it be the cutting off of our right hand or the pulling out of our right eye. May I warn you? There is a dangerous sliding of the work of humiliation. Some alleging this for pretense, for their casual dealing with their own hearts, that Christ will not break a bruised reed. But such must know that every sudden terror and short grief is not that which makes us bruised reeds. Not a little bowing down our heads like a bulrush, as Isaiah said, but a working our hearts to such a grief as will make sin more odious unto us than punishment. Until we offer a holy violence against sin. Else, favoring ourselves, we make work for God to bruise us and for sharp repentance afterwards. It's dangerous, I confess, in some cases with some spirits to press too much and too long with this bruising because they may die under the wound and burden before they are raised up again. Therefore, it is good in mixed assemblies like this to mingle comfort that every soul may have its due portion. But if we have this for a foundation truth, that there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us, there can be no longer danger through our dealing. It is better to go bruised to heaven than sound to hell. Therefore, let us not take off ourselves too soon, nor pull off the plaster before the cure be wrought, but keep ourselves under His work till sin be the sourest, And Christ be the sweetest of all things. And when God's hand is upon us in any way, it is good to divert our sorrow for other things to the root of all, which is sin. Let our grief run most in this channel, that as sin bred grief, so grief may consume sin. But are we not bruised unless we grieve more for sin than for punishment? Sometimes our grief from outward grievances may lie heavier upon the soul than grief for God's displeasure. 
Because in such cases, the grief works upon the whole man, both outward and inward, and has nothing to support it but a little spark of faith. The faith by reason of the violent impression of the grievance is suspended in the exercise of it. This is most felt in sudden distresses which come upon the soul as a torrent of land or land flood, and especially in bodily sickness, which by reason of the sympathy between the soul and the body work upon the soul far as to hinder not only the spiritual, but often the natural. Therefore, James wishes us in affliction to pray for ourselves, but in sickness to call the elders. These may, as those in the gospel, offer up to God in their prayers the sick person who is unable to present his own case. Hereupon, God admits of such a plea from the sharpness and bitterness of the grievance. As in David, the Lord knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. That our strength is not the strength of steel. This is a branch of his faithfulness to us as his creatures. Whence he is called a faithful creator by Peter. God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above what you are able. There were certain commandments which Jews called the hedges of the law. So as to fence men from cruelty. God commanded that they should not take the mother with the fawn, nor boil a kid in his mother's milk, nor muzzle the mouth of an ox. Does God take care of beasts and not his more noble creatures? And therefore we ought to judge charitably of the complaints of God's people, which are wrung from them in such cases. Job had the esteem with God of a patient man, Notwithstanding those passionate complaints, faith overborn for the present will gain ground again. And grief for sin, although it comes short of grief for misery in terms of violence, yet it goes beyond it in constancy. As a running stream fed with a spring holds out when a sudden swelling brook fails. For the concluding of this point, and our encouragement to a thorough work of bruising and patience under God's bruising of us. Let all know that none are fitter for comfort than those that think themselves furthest off. Men, for the most part, are not lost enough in their own feeling for a Savior. A holy despair in ourselves is the ground of true hope. In God, the fatherless find mercy. If men were more fatherless, they should feel more God's fatherly affection from heaven. For the God who dwells in the highest heavens dwells likewise in the lowest soul. Christ's sheep are weak sheep. And lacking in something or other, he therefore applies himself to the necessities of every sheep. The lambs he carries in his bosom. He says to Peter, feed my lambs. He was most familiar and open to troubled souls. How careful he was that Peter and the rest of the apostles should not be too much dejected after his resurrection. Go your way, tell his disciples and Peter. Christ knew the guilt of their unkindness in leaving of him 
had dejected their spirits. How gently did he endure the unbelief of Thomas and stooped so far into his weakness as to suffer him to thrust his hand into his side and his fingers into the nail scars. Christ is the hope of the church. If we look to the present state of the church of Christ, it is as Daniel in the midst of lions, as a lily amongst storms, as a ship not only tossed but almost covered with waves. It is so low that the enemies think they have buried Christ with respect to his gospel in the grave and there they can keep him from rising. Sounds like he's talking about our church, doesn't it? Our day. This was in the 1630s. But as Christ rose in his person, so he will roll away all stones and rise again in his church. How little support has the church and cause of Christ at this day? How strong a conspiracy is formed against it? The spirit of Antichrist is now lifted up and marches furiously. Things seem to hang on a small and invisible thread. But our comfort is that Christ lives and reigns and stands on Mount Zion in defense of those who stand for him. And when states and kingdoms shall dash one against another, Christ will have care for His own children and cause, seeing there is nothing else in the world that He much esteems. At this very time, the delivery of His church and the ruin of His enemies are in progress. We see nothing in motion till Christ has done His work. And then we shall see that the Lord reigns. Christ and His church when they are the lowest and near are the nearest rising. His enemies at the highest are nearest their downfall. The Jews are not yet come under Christ's banner, but God who has persuaded Japheth to come into the tents of Shem will persuade Shem to go into the tents of Japheth. The fullness of the Gentiles has not yet come in, but Christ who has the uttermost parts of the earth given to him for his possession will gather all the sheep of his father, which the father has given to him into one fold, and there shall be one shepherd over the fold. The faithful Jews rejoiced to think of the calling of the Gentiles. And why should we not rejoice to think of the calling of the Jews? The gospel's course has hitherto been as that of the sun from east to west. And so in God's time it may proceed yet further West, no creature can hinder the course of the sun, nor stop the influence of heaven, nor hinder the blowing of the wind, much less hinder the prevailing power of divine truth until Christ has brought all under one head, and then he will present all to his Father. These are those thou hast given to me. These are those that have taken me for their Lord and King, that have suffered with me. My will is that they may be where I am and reign with me. And then we will deliver up the kingdom even to his Father and put down all other rule and authority and power. Let us then bring our hearts to holy resolutions and set ourselves upon that which is good and against that which is ill in ourselves or others according to our callings with this encouragement that Christ's grace and power 
will go along with us. What would have become of the great work of reformation of religion in the latter spring of the gospel if men had not been armed with invincible courage to overcome all hindrances with this faith that the cause was Christ's and that he would not fail to help his own case. Luther ingeniously confessed that he often acted inconsiderably and moved by various passions. But when he acknowledged this, God did not condemn him for his errors. But the cause being God's and his aims being holy to promote the truth and being a mighty man in prayer and strong in faith, God by him kindled that fire which all the world shall never be able to quench. According to our faith, so is our encouragement to all duties. Therefore, let us strengthen faith so that it may strengthen all other graces. The very belief that faith shall be victorious is a means to make it so indeed. Believe it. Therefore, that though it is often as smoking flax, yet it shall prevail. If it prevails with God himself in trials, shall it not prevail over all other opposition? Let us wait a while. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord reveal himself more and more to us in the face of his son, Jesus Christ. And magnify the power of his grace in cherishing those beginnings of grace in the midst of our corruptions. And sanctify the consideration of our infirmities to humble us and of his tender mercy to encourage us. And may he persuade us that since he has taken us into the covenant of grace, he will not cast us off for those corruptions which, as they grieve his spirit, so they make us vile in our own eyes. And because Satan labors to obscure the glory of his mercy and hinder our comfort by discouragement, the Lord add this to the rest of his mercies, that since he is so gracious to those that yield to his government, we may make the right use of His grace and not lose any portion of comfort that is laid up for us in Christ. And may He grant that the prevailing power of His Spirit in us should be an evidence of the truth of grace begun and a pledge of final victory. At that time when He will be all in all, in all His, for all of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. We are not.